Hello everyone, welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Hi Ed. Oh, that was nice. That properly felt like a kind of game show come on down contestant <laughs> announcement. Here I am, I'm ready to play. Yes, there are no prizes other than uh, fun conversation, which is its own reward. It is the ultimate game, Ed. <laughs> How, how's it going? You, of course, have uh, just been uh, at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival performing your show, Dear Wendy. You were uh, up there for the better part of a month. How 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 was all that? Uh, yes, sorry, Big Wendy. Big Wendy, sorry. Don't Dear worry. Wendy is a movie. Yeah, as long as <laughs> I remember gun. my show title, Ed, that's the important thing. Um, yeah, sorry. No, don't worry at all. Yes, uh, oh, how am I? Oh, it's um, It was amazing, thanks. I absolutely loved every second of it. Um, an incredible learning curve. I'm in deep withdrawal now. Uh, the past week has been a total blur, mainly <laughs> spent from bed, <laughs> getting takeaways and reading books and just the chance to be able to see so much stuff as well mm. was just incredible. Um, I saw 48 shows in total this year, 46 if you count that I technically saw two twice. Um, mm-hmm. And that whole atmosphere the thing is is that the fringe has like everything deep systemic problems but it did feel like it felt like quite an important year because i do think some things are starting to change and we should celebrate that but that is off the backs of organizers and people within certain communities doing it for themselves not on the part of (laughs) the fringe society or anyone like that um Mm. so jess broth i'm really sorry jess if i'm saying your name wrong because i've only ever seen it written down who was the um powerhouse behind uh the fringe of color where it was a series of google documents that showed every person of color who was involved in a show at the fringe um that was free to access and just filtered the catalog which is hard to find anything it seems because it does contain absolutely everything um but filtered it right down so that um you could see um who was basically not white at the fringe Mm. and guess what even though it's a really impressive range of shows not a lot of people uh compared to um the the white tidal wave that is the rest of it and uh she also established deals with venues so that young people of color or or disadvantaged economically could see shows at massively discounted rates or for free and that's so important and an incredible initiative and she won um a dave comedy award where she gave a really good and important speech about you know so shouldn't have had to do this really but i did and that we need to invite more people and, and break open a space because you know it shouldn't be about the comfortable remaining comfortable hmm. and so that was really heartening but again it's not it shouldn't then be like well tick done because i think that is often the attitude of the fringe and there's still massive problems in terms of you know it's not recession proof and it was hmm. the lowest fringe in terms of recorded attendance in some years there's been quite a drop off and yeah. a lot of that is to do with well, it's the big B word, it's to do with Brexit in terms of people not, you know, people who would normally come over from Europe and who would plan to were like, well, at the point where they would normally plan to this year, it wasn't sure whether they'd be able to come or not. So there's been a big drop off in that. There's also really punitive um, accommodation prices for visitors, not just performers. Mm. So, yeah, it's interesting times, Ed, interesting times. And it's a beast and I love it but it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next few years for it, I think. See, there we go. You just asked me how how, how <laughs> I found it. And then, funnily enough, I went on a rant about capitalism. Haven't you missed me? <laughs> 
Uh, yes, and that certainly is uh, in keeping <laughs> with how the show, I think, has been recently and uh, will continue to go based on the news this week. The first story we have is uh, the latest in our kind of Disney being terrible corner <laughs> in terms of Disney, particularly since their merger with Fox, uh, doing things that uh, is is not great for broader culture. Um, this one is kind of more specific in that it, it kind of seems to affect a fairly narrow wedge of people, but still uh, is, is, is pretty bad. There were a number of stories circulating on Twitter this week about Disney no longer allowing some repertory cinemas to show movies from the Fox back catalogue, uh, which was something that people had talked about as a possible concern months ago because Fox has this kind of great big wonderful catalogue of, of huge movies going back most of the part of the last century including Rocky Horror Picture Show which is pretty much always being shown somewhere in America and just one of those movies that just because of the sheer amount of times it's been viewed it's been shown uh, is like has been a ridiculously profitable movie for Fox over the years. Uh, Die Hard is a kind of a perennial Christmas classic, as is Home Alone. They're the sort of movies that get shown at Christmas time in smaller theatres and are kind of a, uh, a real boon to cinemas that may struggle if they're otherwise showing kind of more niche stuff the rest of the year. You and I both worked in a, in a, in a cinema in Sheffield that I think kind of... Op- operated on a similar balancing act where you know you would have movies that maybe one person would go and see in a week that is not an exaggeration yeah, uh, yeah. i can think of at least one movie the 2009 argentinian movie leap year i believe we only ever sold one ticket for in the entire two weeks that it ran but then you would balance it out by like oh at christmas time you sell like several thousand tickets to us to various screenings of it's a wonderful life or, you know, you every so often a King's Speech comes along and just kind of carries the place for the better part of a year. And so that's a balance that a lot of rep cinemas have. And people for a while were saying, you know, what does the Disney merger mean for that? Particularly because Disney, for a very long time, have had this policy where theatres, if they want to show old Disney movies, they can't show new Disney movies because they don't. I, I don't know why. I don't know why the possible logic for this is because it's all it's all money going to Disney's pockets. But they, basically, they said if you want to show the Avengers, you can't also show Snow White or whatever movie people want to show there. Mm. And that rule is literally a rule that only Disney have. No one else, no other studio in Hollywood uses that because it's self-defeating and stupid but they've applied it for years and they have now applied it to the fox catalog so these theaters who you know had been showing endgame um earlier in the year you know kind of to to keep themselves afloat now can't show a screening of alien for example because that's a fox property and they're showing a new disney movie and it seems to be a very uh, ill-thought-out policy also because Disney seemed to unilaterally decide who counts as quote-unquote a commercial cinema and who counts as a repertory cinema and also they're not saying you can only show old movies in this you know like you could still show a Warner Bro- a new Warner Brothers movie and show an old Disney movie and they don't really care about that sort of stuff so it's just it's it's a thing like say that isn't going to affect a huge number of people in the broader scheme of things compared to some of the other things that they've been doing but it's potentially a pretty serious blow for a lot of smaller theatres, repertory theatres that do rely on the chance to show like newer high profile movies during the week and then you know particularly Disney because they have a, a, a near monopoly on some of the biggest movies and some of the most popular franchises at the moment and would then use that to buy the chant, the opportunities to show older movies. Yeah, it just really baffles me. I don't. It just seems very selfish and territorial, needlessly, mm. like a real yes. cutting something off to spite the uh, main surface area. I yeah. don't. I don't really get it. It's such an aggressive tactic, and I don't understand. But why? Like, what? What? How are they going to gain from it? 
Yeah, it seems to be... I guess it's kind of the latest expression of Disney's long-standing, zealous guarding of their properties because, you know, obviously in the 80s when the home video boom started, they were very reluctant to put out their movies on video. And even when they did, they had the kind of idea of uh, or artificial scarcity by the whole idea of the Disney vaults and not releasing movies on VHS uh, for very long and making it kind of a premium for people to buy them and this feels like the, that mentality being taken out of the home media market to the more, I would say the more complicated realm of of, of theatrical distribution and particularly rep cinema which is as a very different world to your big multiplexes which can just show new movies and has no real compunction about showing older stuff unless it's around a big like anniversary like this weekend the uh, amc theaters here in the u.s are showing the matrix for its 20th anniversary but that's like very rare that you would get an older movie showing there unless it was a part of an anniversary or a big fathom events or something like that yeah so this really does seem to be disney having this kind of very uh, absolutist policy in place that really doesn't work in the real world in any way that really benefits anyone i would even argue that it it hurts disney in a sense because like there's no there's no logical sense to thinking oh people shouldn't be able if if you show one of our current releases if you show the remake of the lion king and you also want to show die hard that one is going to cannibalize the business of the other it's like they're they're very different markets and even if you're showing like two family movies like it's not like the box office receipts at a particular theater for lion king or aladdin are going to crater because you're showing i don't know the man with one red shoe or something and hey the lion king ed as we all know is actually a christmas movie in what way (laughs) i'm just being facetious Ah. (laughs) i'm just trying to think that could it could there could probably be an argument for it Film Twitter I will find it, one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's that's a story that um, leapt out to me as a, a real kind of example of very small business owners being screwed over by the sheer size and breadth of what Disney has become in a way that is kind of probably unintended. Like, I don't necessarily think that anyone at Disney would have had this in mind as an outcome like it's just more again of their weird covetousness of their own work but yeah it's just it's just real real bad policy making on their part and apparently it is possible for theaters to appeal to disney and say hey can you make an exception for us but that does also seem to be based on whether or not you have a connection at disney whether mm-hmm. or not you'll actually pay off so Maybe, who knows, enough people say, hey, this is really bad and dumb, please stop doing it. They will reconsider it, but it's not really in in Disney's habit to reconsider things. Yeah. Our next story uh, is probably one of the stranger film stories I think I've ever read, which was that Richard Linklater is going to embark on a 20-year film project of adapting Stephen Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along. For people who are unfamiliar, Merrily We Roll Along is a musical that uh, Sondheim did in the, I think, the late 80s, he and Hal Prince, which is a story that unfolds backwards chronologically. It starts with the characters in it as these kind of old, embittered, middle-aged people who are kind of like rueful about their place in society in the world and then it kind of unfolds backwards and you see them get younger and you kind of see how the life kind of ground the light out of them essentially and it's a really interesting musical that has never quite worked the original broadway production as um chronicled in the very good documentary uh, best worst thing that ever happened it was kind of a failure it only ran for a handful of performances and the young cast, which include Jason D'Alexander in one of his early roles, um, like recorded the cast album the day that the show closed. And like they've they've often talked about how 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 kind of like sad and the whole situation was. And 
this approach of filming it over 20 years is is very much kind of trying to do a version of that story that maybe makes a little more sense i guess than doing it with kind of the same actors under makeup which is how you would expect it to be done or you know just using two different sets of actors to act them out at different ages in the style of you know it you know most recently and and this kind of fits into a lot of other stuff that Ling later is that obviously there's the the boyhood connection obviously this is kind of a more ambitious version of of that concept or even what he does with the before movies time and the passage of time has always been kind of a big thing that he's interested in his work but yeah it's just it it's it just strikes me as so such a, a, a fascinating and weird and ambitious thing from Linklater, who, you know, is a, is a filmmaker, filmmaker who has always been very experimental in, in some ways and has kind of tried a bunch of different things over his career. But the idea of committing to, OK, we're going to make this movie over the course of the next 20 years to kind of lend some sort of credence to the fairly abstract kind of structure of it, of the original show, it strikes me as really, as, as really strange and bold. Maybe a massive folly, but, you know, certainly a act of ambition that I, I wasn't anticipating from Linklater at this point in his career. Yeah, you just describing it there, Ed, made me think of uh, what has often passed between you and I in, in our heads often. Paula Pell and her fantastic turn in <laughs> the company knockoff of uh, Documentary Now. I've got yeah. to go. I've got to go. And I feel like, <laughs> is that not how everyone feels on a Richard Linklater film? Like the thing about thing about old Dicky Linky, as no one should ever call him, is mm-hmm. that I think he considers himself the time guy, right? Lots of yeah. lots of um directors and uh cine artists think of themselves as working with sound and vision, right? Mm. May- maybe emotion. Whereas Linklater's like, nah, cinema's all about time. But I think it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a lot of time, Richard. Yeah. I think I think um because he's he's always explored this kind of like in in a lot of his work there is a sense of how we perceive time. Mm-hmm. And um how even in something like Slacker that there's um sort of freeing from a narrative and having an almost like an actual stream of consciousness passed through various different people on one day in Austin, right? And then in terms of, I think he already spoke about time really very beautifully within um, the Before trilogy. Mm. Um, And and to see a couple grow over that time um, and Ethan Hawke just be sort of a really (laughs) quite a shitty dad. (laughs) Mm-hmm. In in the canon, sometimes I I enjoy thinking that the boy in boyhood and and the the boy from his first marriage in uh, before it's all it's all the same. I like the idea of that all being the same universe. <laughs> anyway, that's a personal tangent. Um, yeah, and I just feel like there's something about aging forward that, of course, makes everyone be a bit like Whoa, mortality. I did see various. Uh, commentary out on the film twitter being like are we all just afraid we're not going to be able to see it it's a bold mm. you know maybe it's a folly where it's like cool 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 so you're making a film that's going to take 20 years to make um number one how do you know it's definitely going to take 20 years to make because it could be 25 number two is the planet still going to be around then for you to actually have a premiere mm. so i think it taps into a lot of existential fears but i think even without that i'm a bit like this sounds massively gimmicky and yeah. the thing about boyhood is that, yeah, it's like, oh, we watched this kid grow in real time, but that wasn't, the film ultimately for me wasn't particularly successful because he was such a passive protagonist and had and yeah. had none of the sense of character, which he could have done. He had none of the sense of character that, you know, someone like, you know, Truffaut did with 400 blows and, and, and following, you know, it's not like it's not been done. And I just think, what are you doing this time around that you could have done in boyhood that you I mean I'm I'm open to it I'm open to it but Patricia Arquette's the best thing in boyhood and I'm glad she got her Oscar for it but do we do we all have the time 
Richard, how many McDonald's mm. adverts are you going to have to do in the next couple of decades to fund this? I'm concerned. I'm concerned. The best take on it that I saw, which uh, I've, I've thought about a lot over the last couple of days, is because obviously the end of the movie will have to be filmed first because you're dealing with the young characters, you know, then that's the end of the play. And Linklater hasn't really done much in the way of musical choreography and filming and staging at this point. Uh, there's a very real possibility that the film, the final film, would get worse as it goes along as he would <laughs> film all the stuff like in the next couple of years that you know ends up being the conclusion of it without really a great sense of how to do that stuff and then he would film the beginning stuff in you know 2038 <laughs> and suddenly he'd have got it like nailed and like that that to me seems like one of the uh the the creative risks of it as opposed to the weirder existential ones of like and not to get too morbid but like how do you know all that cast is going to still be alive in 20 yeah. years because things happen like things happen. people get ill people you know kind of die accidentally you're tragically young and i would not wish any of that on you know ben platt and beanie feldstein and any of the other people involved but it is like one of those things where you think like it's a that's kind of the thing about it that is most ambitious is like there's a tremendous optimism in committing to a 20-year uh, film project and it's not like the um the up series for example like the most recent version of, uh edition of which i think is premiering this year where you're following real people and you're kind of finding the stories as you go along like this one is like yeah we know exactly how this story is gonna end because the the show exists and we have yeah um, everything planned in that regard but yeah you just kind of like it's it's kind of weird to think of anyone making that sort of commitment and it's kind of hard to imagine the film getting completed just because it's so hard to imagine what's going to happen over the course of the next 20 years in the lives of the people involved in terms of the the environment in terms of the geopolitical situation yeah. uh if, if nothing else it is a, a, a choice of tremendous optimism on the part of the people involved yeah but that's it like there's a i'm, I'm all for optimism but there is a point mm. where i'm just thinking god the insurance on this yeah to underwrite it must be <laughs> insane and like you say actually that yeah. hadn't occurred to me until you'd said with boyhood no one had seen it so there was an mm. element of like oh god you know what's the end gonna be what's this story gonna be about whereas you're right we we know what the show is so yeah why i mean unless they do something mad with the adaptation you know in terms of a different direction but yeah, yeah. Well, the whole the whole approach is is the mad part of it <laughs> of saying like <laughs> what we what we really need to do is just take the the premise of the musical incredibly literally. Yeah, yeah. Which is people age, <laughs> which I guess is. Did you know, Ed? Did you know? <laughs> yeah, that could be that could be the title of kind of a book, uh, a collection of essays on <laughs> on Linklater's work. Did you know people age? Funny, <laughs> and sometimes it's sad. Uh, next story, and this is kind of more nebulous, it's, it's actually more just kind of a, a a meme or whatever that was going around on Twitter, but there was a lot of discussion over the last couple of days of saying that, like, X actor couldn't do what Y actress did, or, or similar, that the example that I saw was Rachel McAdams could do what Leonardo DiCaprio did in The Revenant, but Leonardo DiCaprio couldn't do what Rachel McAdams did in Mean Girls which yeah. uh, I think gets to the heart of the fact that um, of this discussion of how the greatness of actors is often very myopic in terms of people saying why someone is great at what they do and particular uh, under, it's undervaluing of actresses who can often do a lot of variety of things but are not appreciated for it. And uh, you, you kind of brought this up and I thought it was an interesting an interesting thing to kind of discuss and try and think of our own examples of that i think it's such a neat funny lovely little way of how i think film twitter and film memes in general are at their best because i think it manages to get a point across in a really in a funny way because i thought yeah it hadn't occurred to me and i think myopic is exactly the word for it ed that the greatness of actors is considered in a really narrow channel. And it, it was kind of mm. rattling around in my head. I mean, 
last time you and I spoke, we were, <laughs> well, you were discussing, I was ranting at length about Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio. And that's it. Like, where, where actually is the range there? And to be a successful actress in Hollywood, you know, and again, on this idea of like, who is a star? What is success? I think two of the examples that stood out to me on, on Twitter that I saw today were, yeah, Rachel McAdams and Amy Adams. And it's like, yeah, mm. a- Amy Adams can give you Arrival and she can give you Enchanted and Junebug. Yeah. And, you know, like, she's incredible. But again, I think because she wouldn't necessarily want to be a star, you know, I, I hope she's very happy with her success and, and continues with it. And, you know, Naomi Watts, I think, has always been slept on. You know, I remember her sort of bursting out with Mulholland Drive, and then I don't think anything else has quite matched up to that huge, huge range she showed in that. And that, you know, she's got a funny bone as well. And, I mean, the Book of Henry, hello. I think it is interesting and and that level of versatility. And I would say my immediate... My immediate um, offering for that is Melissa McCarthy, Mm. I think is incredible. And can you ever forgive me? She was so amazing in that and can still do like the boss. Yeah. Um, And in terms of her sort of equivalent, I mean, will Will Ferrell ever do something dramatic? I know that's slightly flipping it on its head, but I do think maybe because Steve Carell, I guess, is the kind of SNL guy done good because he can... You know, we've all seen Little Miss Sunshine and, uh, oh God, Foxcatcher? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I just thought it was a really sweet, funny, neat way of pointing out. And again, it's not actually criticizing or aggrandizing the actors themselves necessarily. It's more about how it's about casting and criticism cultures. Mm. For me, the example that leaps to mind, mainly because she's been in the news this week uh, for getting her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, is Kirsten Dunst. Kirsten. Who, most famous for playing Spider-Man's girlfriend, of course, as we of all course. know. Of course. <laughs> but like she, if you look at the, the, the range of her career, it's really quite startling. If you look at like some of her early roles like um, Dick or Bring It On, and which are in themselves quite quite different but they're both kind of these very heightened comedies or drop dead gorgeous both all three of them kind of very heightened satirical performances and then you look at like melancholia yeah like that is this kind of like bone (laughs) bone deep performance of kind of crushing depression and and being overwhelmed by the end of the world and just the end of existence and things like that and but and then you know stuff in between of various ten, of various textures you know like playing Mary Jane in the Spider Man movies or her work on Fargo like there's a real breadth of of tones and styles in her work uh, that you know would someone like could you say the same of someone like you know like Tobey Maguire her co star yeah. in in Spider Man who is a is a decent actor who's put in some good performances but you you can't imagine him really pulling off the the kind of tone that she does in in those movies I mentioned like like Dick and and Drop Dead Gorgeous, um you know like he he is and at the same time you you would struggle to find him uh, you could struggle to imagine him doing something really as bleak as as Melancholia he is a, a a decent actor but with a fairly narrow range whereas she is a terrific actress actress who is really good at most anything. She is insanely good. Like, and I think what isn't put forward about her enough is that she is one of the very few child actors who's managed to go on and have an incredible career. Like, she's been working since mm. she was. Was it Interview with the Vampire or Little Women she was in first? Probably Interview with the Vampire. That's like 92. Right. 91, 92. And so, and how old was she then? Like 11, 10? Actually, maybe even younger than that. Maybe she was younger. born in 1982. So, yeah, she like nine nine or ten. I mean, that's incredible. Depending on when they filmed it. She's been working since she was, like, ten. 
and Tobey Maguire was sort of a child star-ish, not quite in the same way. But look at someone like Ryan Reynolds. Um, Ryan Reynolds, what am I talking about? Ryan Gosling. Too many, too many mm-hmm. white guys called Ryan and Chris. Move aside. You're all looking the same to me. Um, too many Canadians named Ryan. Bloody hell. Ha- What's that all about? Sorry, Canada. Uh, yeah, Ryan Gosling, Mouseketeer. And he hasn't quite hit that range either because there is mm. one of, I, I think it it remains one of my favourite sketches ever, but pretty much my favourite Funny or Die sketch ever is Ryan Gosling's acting range um, mm-hmm. at the peak of sort of like drive um, mania where it's it's all, nothing's going on here in the face, nothing up top. It's all it's all business, with the um, and mumbling, and yeah, I I just think I just I re- I realise how much I love Kirsten Dunst <laughs> and how incredible she is. Yeah, I'm really really glad that she's finally got this accolade because um, it's a stunning stunning career. I can't wait to see what she does next because no no sign of stopping. Yeah, I really need to watch the first couple of episodes of the show she's on on becoming a god in Central Florida, which apparently mm. she's amazing in. That looks super fun. And she did post something on her Instagram the other day where she is also, uh, she and Alexander Skarsgård are paired up again. And she did a sort of um, compare and contrast side by side with the two of them in Melancholia. And then in Mm. this, which is really fun. Everyone, go watch Kirsten Dunst's work. She's uh, incredible. And our final story this week, before we get on to the main topic, uh, is the the sad news that Valerie Harper had passed away. Valerie Harper, of course, a kind of veteran american actress most probably most well known for her work in the mary tyler moore show and rhoda its spin-off and just a wonderful bubbly presence in pretty much anything she was in a great interviewer interviewee on uh, talk shows and things like that and yeah just always it's always very sad when someone passes away even someone who has lived a kind of a long life and had a very varied and illustrious career and who was rightly recognized for their work it's always it's always sad when someone passes away particularly someone who is you know maybe isn't as in in the limelight now as, as she once was but who played a an iconic character and was featured who was a major part of american pop culture for the better part of a decade or so yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. on that on that happy note our main topic this week is things that work for us in art and it's kind of the broad sense pet themes maybe but basically anything that will either always kind of work on us emotionally or will kind of draw us to uh, a work of art this was inspired for me by going to see lulu wong's the farewell which is a very good movie uh, that I, I liked a great deal probably one of my favorite movies of the year and specifically a scene towards the end there's no no spoilers for the movie itself but just there's a scene towards the end in which two of the characters are sat in a car they're being driven somewhere and the camera just kind of like holds on them for for a a, a, you know the better part of a minute and just kind of traces their reactions as they're thinking about things that have happened to them over the course of the previous couple of days of the movie and I, i remember thinking i really hope this is how the movie ends that it's just cut to black here because uh, I just love it whenever a movie ends like that. It doesn't. In the end, there's a there's a scene or two that follow on from that, um, but you know, it, it just reminded me how that as an ending will pretty much always work on me. Uh, the most famous examples, of course, being The Graduate, um, but also something like uh, The Long Good Friday, where uh, the film ends with Bob Hoskins kind of seeming to recount all of the things that had happened over the course of the movie that led him to, you know, being in the back of a car with Pierce Brosnan pointing a gun at him. And a, a, which uh, if people haven't seen that movie, you should check it out. But you can also watch the, the final scene on on YouTube. It's a real great showcase for what a wonderful physical performer Bob Hoskins was. And the other recent example would be something like Michael Clayton, which also is a movie that plays out with, you know, George Clooney in a car the credits rolling and him just kind of processing everything that ever happened to him. So that that mm. was the thing that leapt out to me is like a an incredibly specific small thing, but any time a movie ends with someone just kind of going somewhere and, and kind of trying to process everything that's happened to them will always kind of work on me a, a little bit. Another good one, Collateral, the Michael Mann movie, which ends with Jamie Foxx and kind of Jada Pinkett Smith kind of wandering off and 
just thinking about the hellish night that they've had together mm-hmm. <laughs> or that they've, or they've been through um yeah that 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 is kind of my jumping off point for that there's a, a very very specific example that of something that pretty much always works for me in a movie oh no i love that and i'm gonna jump right in and add to that i recently finally saw call me by your name and i loved mm. it and i know it's pretty much sort of made for me but that end credit sequence where we have elio looking into the fire as the credits roll and then the credits finish and he's called for dinner and i think that's a really beautiful example of number one how to get people staying for the end credits so you can mm, see everyone yeah. who worked really hard to make this beautiful piece of art and also just a mirror between yeah elio thinking about everything that's happened and, and, and having an emotional response and then also keeping the audience within that and then almost feels quite magical that the credits end and then the film ends so Mm. you're almost allowed to think that it's actually real it's not like the film ends and then credits and you're like no 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 you're actually still seeing this last kind of bit of the emotional arc and it's the idea that elio's just gone to dinner and then you get to leave the cinema and i guess my next point is again call me by your name but i love proper title sequences I love really mm. old school, I wouldn't say how to describe it. I really love the opening title credit sequence of Call Me By Your Name because it's just immediately like a flush of colour and music and it sets the tone so beautifully for the film you're about to watch. And there's something quite old school about having all of the names of the stars and then and then that's it, you're into it. It's not like, oh, we start with something and then we get the movie title or whatever. I just think it feels like a book in that way to me somehow. Mm. But I love, you know, and in old black and white films as well, that kind of, you know, manual rolling of the names at the beginning. Mm. I think, and I and I had this actually because I saw Pain and Glory as well, which I was not crazy keen on, but that opening title sequence, that was worth my admission price alone that was worth the ticket this beautiful kind of undulating marble um color effect kaleidoscope with um a central kind of white rectangle that almost looked a little bit like a screen within a screen um Mm -hmm. i love that and the amount of films i'll 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 watch and I think it used to be I don't know if Empire still do it anymore but there used to be kind of like a, a roundup of the best credit sequences of, of the year and and certain ones stick with me even though the films I'm not crazy about like Catch Me If You Can um mm. like Bass's work yeah that's definitely something because I think there's something about the craft at every point and I think if a credit sequence is really strong you know that every effort has been made to make every bit of that film as artistic as possible i think yeah the uh, the opening credits for catch me if you can which is a movie that I, I think i like more than you but that i think that's the last example i can think of most recently where the opening credits to a movie was so iconic in their own right that like the Simpsons could do a couch gag based on it yeah. and everyone knew exactly what it was doing. <laughs> like I can't think of many other ones since then, mainly because the, the, you know, title sequences like that have, have somewhat fallen out of fashion in recent years. Mm. But yeah, like that was, that was one where I always thought, like you say, it sets the tone really well. And I think that there is something akin to like a theatrical performance or an opera or something like that of having kind of an overture to it. If it's, Something like Punch Drunk Love is one I always think of where um, the opening titles to that, if I remember correctly, is just, you know, the 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 kind of shifting light patterns and the John Bryan score playing in the background, yeah. which gets you very much into the headspace of the Barry character and really sets you sets the tone for what the movie is going to be mm. um, better than, you know, just starting on him going to work and the, the organ being destroyed. Which itself is a good a good way to start the movie and kind of throwing you off kilter, but I think in terms of establishing the strange romantic air of that movie, like that, that opening sequence is very good. And and 
you know, not not post credit scenes, but so much just like credit scenes of the movie playing out over something. It's almost like you know, giving you a moment of repose, where yes. the character, like the like Elio, is thinking about the movie having happened, and you and Turner are also kind of forced to think about that. Yeah. And Timothy Chalamet's face, you know, is kind of a perfect canvas for that sort of thing because he is a really good reactor. Yes. And that's that's all that scene is. Here's him kind of reacting to the fire in front of him and the, his thoughts on what has happened over the course of the movie. Uh, a, a good another example of that that I've always really liked is the end of the third man, oh, which is yes. just her walking away in that kind of like tree line forest, which I always thought is like a real wonderful way to end that movie. And you know what has been a, like a really entertaining kind of romp through the seedier side of Vienna with this focus on this one character's clear kind of pain over everything that's happened absolutely and i think coming back to talking about moments of repose i think the thing that opening credits can do is set up like you were saying about um punch drunk love they can set they can do so much work in terms of setting up what you're about to see like um two night stand uh which is overlooked modern classic starring anna lee tipton and miles teller begins with Annalie Tipton, her character, filling out a dating profile. Um, and But we see it in real time. And it's the opening credit sequence. So even though we don't see her fill it out, we are already completely in this character's head, her motivations, her flaws, her foibles, because we see her type out things and then delete them <laughs> and mm-hmm. then set them. So off the bat, you know who she is. And it does it in a really impressively economic way so yeah i just oh i think yeah i think they're really beautiful bookends to films credit sequences and i think they are i wouldn't say dying a death but because there are some really beautiful ones recently that we've spoken about but yes it comes back to such netflix and being able to skip intros or mm. not necessary and i'm i'm totally totally guilty of this and not watching <laughs> all of the credits you know there can be um, there can be a loss there. Yeah, I, I I think now there's very much that sense that if a movie has opening credit sequences, it's that it's like very much an artistic choice as opposed to oh this is a thing that movies have. Yeah. Like it's very clear, and in that sense, it can be very informative. Like if a movie starts with a very clearly composed and considered opening credit sequence then you know oh the person who's making this is wanting us to really think about what kind of movie they're making and th- that doesn't necessarily have to be like uh classy or whatever like i think of something like um scott pilgrim versus the world has some of that where the the opening credit sequence is you know there's a bit of of cold open or whatever and then uh, Scott's band start playing and then you know the camera pulls back and back and back and possibly far and you know they're they're and the, the kind of like the graphics are going crazy and that's very much movie that starts as it means to go on as being like yeah this is going to kind of be a whole hodgepodge of a lot of different things going on mm-hmm. uh, an example of a particular theme or or story uh, point that uh, I really like is um, sacrifice, but not, but of the 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 the, the non fatal kind. Obviously, someone like sacrificing their life or whatever in a movie is something that you know is hard not to respond to. But I always really respond to like if someone takes the blame for something in order to spare someone else's life or to yeah. spare someone from going to prison. The two examples that I thought of for that um, both were on television. The um, I want to say the fourth season of Friday Night Lights ends with a character taking the rap for something that their brother had done in, or because you know the brother has uh, got a young kid on the way, and so the brother uh, agrees to kind of own up to the crime because he thinks you know that his brother needs to stay out and look after his son and his family. And the end of This Is England '86 uh, oh, ends. Yeah has a a character who a character has a very complicated relationship to the other characters it's fair to say uh taking the rap for 
something and going to prison and uh, soundtracked, I believe, to The Bitterest Pill by The Jam. A really kind of like beautiful resolution to that story. And then kind of more generally, like this is the main reason why It's a Wonderful Life always really works for me. That sense of George Bailey having lived his life for other people and spread so much joy into the world through his actions and helping people whilst also uh, making himself completely miserable. <laughs> um, but him realising that, that the good that his sacrifice has done uh, is one of the main reasons why that movie uh, will always reduce me to tears. Yeah, all of that is so... And I think kind of on a similar-ish um, slant in terms of themes, any kind of defiance through art really gets mm. me like mm-hmm. um in Casablanca I think is the main example where everyone stands up and sings the Marseillaise um which is just and you know tears streaming down their faces because it's all they can do but they are but they are defiant in that way and then the flip side of that is in uh Cabaret or you have mm. the perfect Aryan specimen singing Tomorrow Belongs to Me and that always really gets me because it it shows how you know it's the, it's the same principle but different ideologies I guess mm. um, the, the power of the power of that kind of culture coming through and it's been a while since I've mentioned Six Feet Under but there mm-hmm. is an episode um, where Nate is with is exploring um, Quakerism and they all start right. singing, uh, the congregation starts singing, we're quiet, angry people singing for our lives. Mm-hmm. Yep, nope, that always gets me. <laughs> um, I th- a lot of singing, I didn't, I didn't realise, but a lot of kind of, um, not, not full-blown musical, but people sort of breaking into song at times of uh, not being sure what else to say or what else to do. That, that definitely mm. brings a lump to my throat. Yeah, I think um, on a similar tip, I am always really moved by dance in movies, particularly big choreographed movements, that sense of everyone working together for a common aim, even if it's not uh, and de- it, it, it kind of part of the story, but more in the sense of like the craft that's involved of getting like... 20 or 30 people to do the same moves as you know in in time with each other or like doing different moves that kind of build up to something greater um that sense of collaboration and and solidarity in a way is something that i find incredibly moving in movies i just really like the combination of like the humanity of the expression that's involved in dance and the the kind of physical rigor that is involved in order to try and (laughs) actually make it happen even in things that aren't necessarily going for a sense of emotion the one that leaps out to me is uh uh the the beat keshi movie zatoichi Mm. has a big kind of massive dance number Uh, i think at the end of the movie it's been a while since i've seen it but i always remember like that's one of those ones that are you know you fire up that clip on youtube and being like really for me overwhelmed by the the beauty of all these people, these craftspeople coming together to create this this really kind of like beautiful thing. It's, 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 I guess it gets even deeper to why I like movies. It's like it's this wonderful collaborative medium of all people working together in different ways to, to try and create something uh, beautiful. Yeah, for sure. I think I, there's a bit of that for me in Upstream Colour as well. Mm. I think that kind of, any kind of direct action, tell you what, that, right. that definitely gets me. Um, at the end of Upstream Colour, this, which is such a beautiful film, I need to go back and watch it again because I think it's so evocative, um, strange, and yet by managed by sort of being very artistic and, and quite high sci-fi in some ways, and incredibly grounded in others, it feels very. Um, it is just really moving. This kind of pre, this sort of reuniting of people and pigs that might have some kind of psychic connection because of this weird mm-hmm. see when you start to explain it it's, it's definitely something to watch and uh the end of um my brother is an only child which is a uh wonderful italian film 
And uh, I realise this is a bit spoilery, but hey, everyone go and watch it and uh, close your ears for the next minute. Where the sort of brother with previously sort of fascist leanings then manages to sort of facilitate everyone in the town getting their keys to their flats back so everyone's got a home because he realises actually that falling in line with a particular ideology is not the best way to do it, like help the people who immediately need help. Um, yeah, mm. gets me, gets me. I think that's one of the reasons why, even though it's been parodied a million times and it's really kind of, it's become its own cliché, but that's one of the reasons why uh, the end of Spartacus, I think, still works beautifully. Yeah. There is something, I think, viewed in isolation, which I think is how most people encounter it now, or parodied, you know, in, in other things. Uh, most most famously, The Life of Brian, where they brilliantly invert it. You know, watching it separately, it maybe doesn't have the same impact, but when you watch it in the, the context of the movie and you really understand what all these people have gone through and what they are willing to give up in order to you know make this futile last stand for this cause and the, the man that's led them on the way there uh, I, I do find that immensely moving in that sense of just thousands and thousands of people all standing up at one moment and being like we're not gonna give up this this one person if it will save our lives because you know it, it will just end up with us all being slaves yeah yeah uh, another one in kind of in a similar vein although actually in Maybe it's kind of the opposite in some ways, but uh, I I really, really relate to stories that are affirming that an, an individual person matters, not in the sense of, like, you know, great man of history or the sense of, like, one person's life is kind of cosmically important, but in the sense of any individual's life is worth is worth living and that it's worthwhile for someone to be on the planet and yeah, yeah. that people are worthy of kind of love um the most recent example of this that like really i found incredibly moving was the tv series neon genesis evangelion which i've been watching on netflix which ends with the main character who has spent the entire series being kind of profoundly depressed and cutting himself off from the world and not wanting not believing that he's worthy of any kind of like love or attention having this sudden revelation that he is worthy of existing in the world he literally like says something along the lines of um it's okay for me to be here and that's kind of his big revelation at the end of the show and i i found it to be incredibly beautiful uh people who watched the show in the 90s hated it and wrote death threats to the people who made the show but uh i i personally find those sort of stories that are not necessarily like about rugged individualism or about like affirming um the individual's rights over the collective or whatever but about yeah. just saying like it is it is worthwhile for someone to be a person and be allowed to live their lives i i, I find that sort of stuff incredibly moving oh same absolute same i mean that's mr rogers through and through mm. there's not yeah. one bit of mr rogers where you know thank you for being my neighbor for being my friend and being how you are because he manages to do it in a way that isn't entirely lacking in condescending sort of sentimentality. It's incredibly real. And yeah, I think that, that sense of welcoming and belonging is really important. I think I think on sort of a branch off of that, keep allowing people to be who they are. People who aren't fully healed, but there's mm-hmm. still a kind of revolution. Um, which is why Leave No Trace absolutely destroyed me. Yeah, yeah. Um, because there is a kind of resolution, but it's not the one that that I think is expected or neat or tidy, but there is a kind of peace mm-hmm. and a benefit to it. I felt sort of similar with um, Thunder Road, Jim Cummings' film. I think there's something about seeing someone who genuinely is trying their best yeah, and it's a kind of Job-like shit just keeps getting thrown at me, and and grief. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> I'm <laughs> I'm I'm grieving. I'll be grieving for the rest of my life. But in the sort of first year of grieving, any any film of any quality that features any kind of conversation, someone who is trying to 
dead on that flashback. I watched Wild the other day for the first mm-hmm. time. And even though I, I felt straight, strangely lukewarm about the app, you know, the walk bits, which I don't know if you know this, Ed, there's a lot of walk bits. Yep. Any part that had Laura Dern in it and, and Reese Witherspoon and Sarah talking back and forth as Cheryl Strait and her mother, Bobby, completely destroyed me. And I think it's because there are certain... It's not just because I could see shade with my own mum, Bobby, her attitude towards mm. life, but it's just it's just that. Also, nothing to do with anyone being dead at all, but anything featuring grandmothers and grandchildren mm. is getting to me, and I think will for a long time. And that's... That's a more specific and recent development, I have to say. Uh, for me, something that often takes me by surprise is things that are physical representations of grief, mm. um, particularly in terms of in our recent times, things like um, you see in a movie like someone listens to a voicemail from someone who's who's passed or yeah. like um the last text message that someone sent things like that i know when uh my sister passed away um some years ago now the thing that hit me really hard after it happened was going to her uh going to her house and seeing like her purse just out like having been put down and knowing that at some point she had planned, you know, she would plan to go and pick it up and go and buy something or yeah. seeing on her calendar plans of things to do in the next couple of days. That that real sense of the frayed edges of a life, the things that are just suddenly cut off. Uh, any movie that kind of has that sort of stuff. Oh, always, I always found it very affecting that, you know, in the in the six years since she she passed away, um, yeah, that stuff always really gets to me. Of course, of course. The the example that um sprung to my mind um just now, listening to you saying that that I found really powerful at the time, long before my mum died, um, is in True Blood, mm-hmm. where Suki eats the final pecan pie. That right. Her yes. Because it's just left yeah. in the fridge, and her grandma dies so suddenly and horribly. And, and a Patrick's performance is absolutely incredible, but she just sits there and it's kind of like, I mean, Alan Ball, at the top of Back of Dixie Under, is one of the most incredible writers about death generally and grief. But that scene, mm. I think, in True Blood, because True Blood is such a different, totally different piece to Dixie Under, um, yeah. to have this really grounding moment is something that you just never quite see. And a lot, and a lot of, to have this grounding moment. I mean, not dissimilar to Buffy and the body, that sort of moment mm. as well. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll never forget Anna Patrick's face sobbing as she comes back this last hallmark of any of her loved ones and it's such an incredible microcosm of that grief. Mm. I think, yeah, I hadn't thought about true blood in quite some time but I, I think that moment was one of the things that maybe kept me going with it longer yeah. than the rest of the show <laughs> warranted yeah, um because yeah. that, that was a show that i think started very very well the first season is is great and the second season's uh pretty good but yeah Ooh, it, it went off the road pretty quickly it did. um but m- moments like that which were kind of like seemed to promise like okay you're going to get all this you know sexy vampires and violence and blood gushing everywhere and lots and lots of sex but you're also going to get moments of real human connection and like every so often you'd get one of those and think ah yes this is the man that that wrote some of the best television i've ever seen and then you get stuff that was not that (laughs) one of the things i i've kind of got a very broad not entirely serious designation for it but um what I've called art installation nonsense. <laughs> um, 
which is any time that a movie kind of takes a big risk on being like we're not really going to commit to being a movie that much or we're going to do some stuff that's like overtly theatrical and stagey um the big example of this of a movie that i think does this brilliantly and that um kind of had me from the opening minute is uh nicholas vinding reference bronson which yes. is a movie that is half kind of like you know a traditionally shot movie of tom hardy playing the character of charles bronson um the the uh, infamous uh british prisoner uh who and, and you know like has him going around and and kind of him acting but the thing about the movie that really sets it apart that it was the thing that made me kind of think oh this guy's a really good actor <laughs> i really hope he does a lot more things um is the stuff of him directly talking to the camera standing on a stage and giving this really kind of big theatrical performance with like various different face paints on um mm. particularly i always think of the scene of him acting out a conversation between him and uh, i think someone who worked for the prison system or maybe a doctor where one half of his face is painted to be charles bronson and the other half is to be them and he's just turning around and that that sort of thing is just catnip to me where someone's going to really trying to tackle i would say fairly boilerplate not 100 percent that interesting material in the, the story of charles bronson and deciding to take it in a really interesting direction and there being like oh this guy is essentially an invention of his own creation obviously mm. the, the the facts of his life are true and he grew up in like a small town robbed the post office got sent to prison and then remained in prison by just beating people up for the most part um but the image of himself that he's created through the books that he's written is a kind of a big exaggeration so what we're going to do is we're going to do a, the, the the kind of literalization of that of him performing what is essentially a one-man show about his own life in front of an audience and uh, i've i always really really responded to that movie in particular and there have been other movies uh, like um sex and drugs and rock and roll the ian jury biopic that kind oh, of yes. does some of this sort of stuff um did that that really really well and kind of having this very fragmented view of ian jury's life and often having bits that are staged in a way that feels more like an art installation or a, or a, or a theatrical production blinded by the light which i saw most recently has a really great sequence where the main character listens to dancing in the dark for the first time the first time he's ever really listened to a bruce springsteen song and the lyrics are flashing up on screen and they're being back projected as he's kind of like wandering out in a storm and i found that like a really effective way of communicating the bigness of what that song meant to him and how it kind of opens up his eyes to um the work of bruce springsteen and what his art means to him as someone who couldn't be further removed from springsteen's life and the traditional idea of who a, a springsteen fan is uh, but yeah, yeah so stuff like that always at the very least gets me interested it, it, I, it doesn't always work but um if i hear that a movie is trying something like that i'll always kind of like perk up and want to seek it out yeah yeah so we end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot of verse shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week got to be Lana Del Rey's new album, Norman fucking Rockwell. <laughs> mm, great title. <laughs> Excellent title. Yeah, Sultry Sadness. She heard our cries and she's serving it in, in dollops. Um, I think it's a really intimate, mature listen. Um, it's not like there's any dance bangers, but I look forward to the remixes, as inevitably there will be. Um, mm. But I think I just really enjoy that Lana Del Rey has really stuck with her very specific image and sense of uh, that she hasn't changed all that much. She's just evolved within her 60s Americana aesthetic. Um, and there's a lot of really sassy radicalness underneath the kind of smooth, smooth surface. So, yeah, I think it's well worth a few spins cool i am going to recommend a podcast which i've recently gotten into called blocked party which <laughs> is um probably the most online of the capital o podcast out there but uh, it's one i enjoy a great deal it is a show in which the two hosts interview someone to talk about a time that they've been blocked by someone on social media <laughs> and the context Amazing. in which 
the context in which that happened and uh, you know their their kind of like feelings about it. Um, the actual block part of it is often it, it, it's varying. Sometimes it's really funny in a case of like someone um, kind of going after a you know kind of right wing shithead or whatever and getting into a, a an argument with them, which ends with them being kind of blocked in a kind of a moment of huffiness or uh, and then there are other times where someone just makes a joke at a corporate account and they get blocked but so the, the blocks themselves kind of vary in quality but the stories around them are often very very funny you know the people involved are you know kind of really engaging comedians who are capable of having these like really fun conversations about the weirdness of being so active online in general and these incredibly strange interactions that you can have with corporate accounts uh the episode i would recommend because it was the first one that i listened to was the episode from a few weeks ago with uh bobby big wheel who is a kind of twitter comedy person who also works very hard to elect uh leftist and socialist candidates in american politics uh where he talks about being blocked by uh benny johnson the plagiarist who used to work for buzzfeed and is now a truly embarrassing human being oh wow Uh, it's re- it's a really funny episode because of the the story itself of how he came to block be blocked but also just just in general of them making fun of Benny Johnson for being like I say truly embarrassing they play bits of him giving a a TEDx talk where he just talks about memes and uh yeah it's it's one of the most excruciating things i've ever heard. Wow. um yeah so that's my recommendation blocked party if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, Raters, Reviewers, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.